Open up to the book of Acts, chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. We're going to start there to set up our passage in Psalm 13 this week. I begin with this question. You ever, you ever watch children at the beach? How many of you like to go to the beach, like to hang out at the beach? Let me see your hands. We're a huge beach family. Love to do that growing up. And one of the fascinating things for me is just to watch children at the beach. It's awesome because they get right to work. They all have jobs at the beach and they just, like adults use the beach often to just hang out, right? We set up our shade, we've got a cooler and we're just like, ah, I'm just going to hang out here. Kids often get right to work. I've got this great picture, I should have pulled it up, but it was when my oldest was young and he's got a giant thing of seaweed that must have reached down to, you know, the middle of the ocean and he's just dragging it across the beach, you know, and I'm like, relax, dude. No, I'm kidding. Um, but one of the things that they like to do is build sandcastles. I remember this, building a sandcastle, and there's a there's a there's an optimum spot to build a sandcastle. You build it too far away from the water, of course, and the sand's all mushy. You've got to make tons of laps back and forth, and you get it too close, and the waves are knocking your stuff down. There's kind of this optimal spot, right, to build a, a sandcastle. And as many of you have experienced firsthand or witnessed firsthand, what happens is you're building your sandcastle, and slowly but surely, what happens when the tide comes in, right? It starts to just lap up a little bit closer, and there's a big wave that comes. And you're like, oh! So what do you do? You build a seawall, right? You start to build defenses, right? Because your people, uh, they like the beachfront property, they love the ocean view, but they need protection. I mean, their buildings are getting knocked over. So you change your strategy, and you start to build a seawall. You might, you might build a ditch, which kind of catches some of the water, and so it goes around it, sort of. Um, but little by little, it obviously comes creeping up, and it's always kind of sad. It was sad to me as a kid, it's sad to me now to watch all this hard work just go away. It just gets washed out by the tide. Now, think about your life for a minute. I don't know if you've walked in here with things going really splendid, like we just sang, the world's all as it should be, or if you're walking through a valley right now. But the bottom line is, is just like kids at the sand, we can't keep life at bay. Right, And our efforts, to some degree, our efforts to build a seawall are as, as productive as a kid putting up a bunch of sand to try and keep the, the tide out. So I don't know where you're at right now, but look at the screen. Uh, how, how does, how's the tide in your life right now? Let me tell you this. If right now your sandcastle's doing awesome and the ocean's out there somewhere, know this. It is coming. Life just has this way of almost like the tides coming and going seasons. If things are really, really bad right now, hang on because tomorrow's coming, next week's coming, next month is coming. If things are really, really great right now, hang on because next week is coming, next month is coming, the following year is coming. When Christians have the tides of life that we see in this photo come up and wash over them and knock their sometimes flimsy structures down, not if, but when that happens, we run to our Heavenly Father for deliverance. That was the big idea from last week. We have a God who is strong. We have a God who is able to handle that. We have a God who delivers us. What we're going to look at this morning in our ongoing series, looking at what God is like as a lover, is this. What about when God is silent? As Christians, we run to God for deliverance. That's what the people of God have been doing since the dawn of time. But what about those times when God is utterly silent? Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought we already had 
in the Smitten series, Our God Speaks. We did. That was one of the early ones. And it's the idea of revelation. It's the idea that God has revealed himself to us. It's the idea that God does speak into our life. He has spoken and he is speaking. But if you haven't figured out by now, when you're dealing with God, you better start to learn to get comfortable with paradox. You better start to get to learn to understand that our finite minds can't quite grasp the outer reaches of where God exists. And so when I say that God is a God who speaks and a God who is silent, I believe it's utterly accurate. In fact, I know it to be utterly accurate, both from experience and from revelation. Look at this verse on the screen, and there's no notes for you to take necessarily this morning, but you can jot this down and look at it later. It's a great passage to remember. It's a gift to us from God. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29. Easy reference to remember. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That paints a picture that there are different kinds of knowledge. There's different kinds and classes of, of information and wisdom and times. And some of it's been kept back from us and some of it's been given to us as a gift. Where the problems start, where our struggles begin, is when we start to go, I want, I want the other. I want what I don't have. And that's what we're going to look at uh, in Psalm 13 here in just a couple of minutes. Last week we talked about the idea of God being a hiding place. This week we're looking at what happens when God hides his face. He's not our hiding place, but he's hiding his face. Last week the psalm started with waiting in silence before God. This week it's God being silent before us. And I know that many of you in this room are right here with me. This is where you're at in life right now. I've been praying for you. I've been thinking about, God, what do you want to say to our people this morning? I know it's greater than what I could possibly whip up or come up with or study about. So I want you to know, like every Sunday, but this Sunday in particular, I feel like God has a message for us as a church body. And my prayer is that God would just take the words that he's written, the words that I say, the songs that we sing, the communion that we celebrate, and that he would do a work in this place this morning. To set up Acts, I mean uh, Psalm 13, we're in Acts 1. In Acts 1, what we see is uh, just an ongoing pattern that we see from the Lord. Verse 4 it was talking about Jesus. It says, it says, while staying with them, he, meaning Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to circle that word. The Bible's meant to be marked up, written in, highlighted, questions written down next to it, prayers responded to in it. Jesus is telling his disciples, wait. Wait. Wait here in Jerusalem. Wait for what? It goes on to say in verse 4, uh, for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The disciples go on to say something that disciples through the ages have said, and that is this. 
Verse 6, so when they came, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Isn't it fascinating that disciples through the ages are constantly concerned with timing? Some of you have kids who are constantly saying, are we there yet? When? How much longer? And timing is just a huge concern for them. It's true of disciples too, isn't it? Here the disciples are saying, is this the time? You know part of why they're saying that? What was his answer? All through the book of John, we kept looking at this. Do you remember this? Jesus kept giving an answer. He would say this, my time has not yet come. John would give us commentary on the scenario and say, he did this because his time had not yet come. The book of John builds to this crescendo, all pointing to the cross, all leading to the resurrection, this monumental time in human history. But we're led to it by saying his time had not yet come. And so now here he is, the resurrected Christ, telling them to wait in Jerusalem. And they're finally like, so now is the time? Again, wanting to know the details. What's coming? I won't take you there, but the rest of chapter 1 and 2 is a great read. It's commonly called the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is a day filled with wonder. They get baptized by the Holy Spirit. What that looks like is there's about 120 of them in this room. And it says that tongues that look like tongues of fire land on them and they begin speaking. And they're all heard and understood. And there's a group of people from all over the world that are there, gathered in Jerusalem, this high and important city, and they're wondering what's happening because they're all hearing it in their own language. And God does this incredibly mighty work at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you know what happens at the day of Pentecost? In essence, here's what happens. God takes the gospel message, which he says this is the power to save mankind. And he starts with a small group of disciples who's been roaming around a Galilean countryside, and now he's entrusting this plan to 120 people who are going to go and turn the world completely upside down, not by their strength, not by their gift, but totally and completely by the grace of God. Here we are today. This is what we're celebrating today. This is what blow, this was, this should blow your mind as we take communion this morning that churches all around the entire globe are going to celebrate and remember and follow the instructions of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in a very similar fashion to how we're doing. Yeah, the setting's a little different. They may not have electricity, chairs, same clothing, same hairstyles, but it's, it's pretty much the same. Powerful, big picture. Now, as you look at Israel's uh, history, you could say that, that whining and complaining might be considered their national pastime. You just read the Old Testament. That is what they do. They're whiners and complainers. Now, before you like turn your nose down at them, uh, take a look in the mirror, because we tend to do the same thing at different times, right? Uh, there's a whole generation of, of Israelites whose lives were defined by waiting, whining, and complaining. Talk about a desert experience. Try 40 years, right? 40 years. Think back to your last 40 birthdays. Some of you are like, uh-uh, I'm not even that old yet. Exactly. Wandering, waiting, whining, complaining. That's a desert experience. For all of those who have ever been driving and and heard the words, are we there yet? Can we get this now? It'll take forever, but you promised, and like. 
Let me show you some verses on the screen. You don't have to write these down, but they're there in Scripture. I'm just touching on a tiny little iceberg here of, of, what's, of what's really there, tip of the iceberg. But here are some passages I want to share with you just from the Psalms. Psalm 6, 3 says this, I am sick at heart. How long, O Lord, until you restore me? Psalm 74, 1, O God, why have you rejected us so long? Why is your anger so intense against the sheep of your own pasture? Psalm 74, 10 through 11, How long, O Lord, will you allow our enemies to insult you? Will you let them dishonor your name forever? Why do you hold back your strong right hand? Psalm 79, 5, O Lord, how long will you be angry with us forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? That's just doing a brief look at the words how long through the Psalms. Over and over again, we see not just in the Psalms, but in Israel's own history, this idea of being frustrated with God's timing. Some of you are there right now. We just sang a song, give me a revelation, show me what to do. And here we are, a people frustrated, much like the Israelites were. Turning your Bibles from Acts over to the left a little bit to John 11. I'm giving you two different snapshots before we get into our psalm. We're going to read through the psalm in its entirety. It's a relatively short psalm, but a very powerful, poignant one. In John chapter 11, there's the story of Lazarus. It's pretty familiar, even if you haven't shown up in church a whole bunch in your lifetime. Many know the story of Lazarus. In the story of Lazarus, what we see is a picture of Jesus. And there's some interesting things I want to point out to you. To set it up, Lazarus and Mary and Martha are uh, friends of Jesus, and he loved them. And Lazarus is sick, and they see that he's going to die, so they go and approach the teacher, and they say, hurry and come to us. They did what the people of God do. They run to their deliverer. They saw Jesus as the embodied person of God. So they ran to him and said, Lord, come. Come right away. I hope you're praying this way. Lord, right now, pray. I, come right now. Come, Lord Jesus. And then in verse 5, it says this. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Really important statement. Look at the very next word. The ESV translates it this way. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I don't know about you, but a loving friend who has all power and can heal. And it just says explicitly that he loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It does not follow logically then at the start of verse 6. It would say, so he stayed for two more days where he was. Now, just because we know the end of the story and we can get there very quickly in a few sentences... It's sometimes easy to remove ourselves from the circumstance, right, and the, and the situation. You ever been touch and go for someone's life for two days? That's gut-wrenching, right? I mean, a minute passes and it feels like an hour. That's where the soul starts to cry out from a place deeper than we normally access. God, how long? Where are you? Are you going to be gone forever? 
But it says Jesus loved them, so he stayed where he was for two days. I hope this is settling in on you. We're not going to dissect John 11 today. That's not where we're at. But I just want to show you this scene because it's a poignant scene of Jesus in the New Testament living out what Psalm 13 is going to talk about. When he gets there a few verses later, Martha says, Lord, if only you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Her faith was well placed, wasn't it? Jesus is about to say, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. There's another key I want to point out. Verse 15. Here's another key to the response that I want you to see as we start to look into this idea of the silence of God. Verse 15 says this. Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus loves them, so he waits for two more days. Now he's glad that he wasn't there. We start to have compassion on why people have confusion about about this God of ours. That seems really painful. That seems on the surface cruel even maybe, or capricious. But it's really powerful to see in the very words of Jesus that this waiting period This pause that he offers is not for his sake. It's not because he's being bugged and has better things to do. It's because he loves him and them, and it's for their sake. Can we start to translate this to our own waiting? Can we start to translate this to the silence of God in our own life? Here's the astounding truth that I see not only in these two passages, but woven throughout Scripture, is that there is a kingdom of God being built up right now. And there's a master architect who is using those whom he's called, he calls them the elect in Scripture, for his purposes. And that no matter what your junk is today, no matter what you've brought in here, caring and having as a burden and wondering where God is in this giant mess, Let me say this, as one of God's chosen own, as the one who began the good work in you and is seeing it through to completion, you are a part of the master architect's plan to building this kingdom. And whatever that junk is, whatever that question is, whatever the problem is, if you could hold it right here, you could look at it and say, even this can be used by a God to build and accomplish His will. You know what that does for me? It takes my prayer about this, and it reorients it in a different way. What this text shows us is this, that while Lazarus may have been sick, he was sick, he was probably very confused, and in fact he was dead, Lazarus was never unloved. At no point was Lazarus unloved by the one who holds all authority and all power in his hand. That's where the comfort lies in this story. All right, now you can flip over to the middle of of your Bible, turn to Psalm 13. I've been saying this over and over, but in the Psalms, 
what you do is you just find yourself and the people you know. It's an amazing reflection of where you are at, and it covers so many seasons of life. You'll read a psalm in one season of life. It won't hit you at all. You'll say, that was nice. God, I'm reading it because I'm sure there's something for me there. You'll come back to it another season. It will be literally like food for you. In fact, you will actually forget to eat or feel satisfied by soaking in a psalm because it ministers to you in such a powerful way that, that drink and food just have no, there's no comparison. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. God, this morning, I pray that you would take the meaning and the comfort and the instruction and the rebuke that's wrapped up in a few short verses of our text right here in the middle of our Bibles. And would you as a master physician administer them to the hearts and minds and wills and circumstances people in this room as only you can do. Holy Spirit, we praise you that you indwell us. We praise you that you are here and we, we welcome you. We submit to your leading and working in our lives even now. In the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I hope you don't read this and think that this is just penned from you know, kind of the palace coffee shop and he's writing some artistic words. This is being written. These rhetorical questions reveal the heart of the author that says, I'm totally frustrated right now. I can't believe you would let enemies prosper and your own chosen ones be beat down. Where are you? Why are you hiding your face from me? And as we see in the opening complaint, these rhetorical questions, we see the frustration in the heart. His troubles are spiritual. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten these promises, God? They're also personal. You see personal uh, over and over, for sure, with King David, but in other writers as well, these personal struggles being written about. And they're also circumstantial. He lays out as many of the Psalms do, lays out the complaint in detail. Here are the problems I'm having. Address them. Consider and answer me. He's not making general statements. He's specifically calling out the circumstances of his life. You know what might be the greatest affront to our lover God? is to compartmentalize him into 10% of our lives. I'll think about you, cry out to you, look to you to deliver me when I'm at church, 
when I'm at Bible study on Wednesday night, and certainly during the holidays. I don't know how you would feel, kids, if your parents decided to be your parents on back-to-school night, awards night, and holidays, birthdays. But the rest of the time, they're checked out. They're like, you're on your own for that. How much does a kid want their, their parent there on awards night when they haven't been there the rest of the time? No kids have to be taught this. They instinctively know this is a rip-off. This isn't how it should be. And yet God graciously, patiently worked in my life to where I had been giving him maybe 10%, the bare minimum. I didn't say half percent, five percent, not even ten, because I went to church every other week. So he got five percent of me. And he graciously, graciously and patiently and kindly led me to a place of repentance where I gave him all of me. Here's what he does in the psalm. It says that he resorts, look at verse two. It says that he resorts to him being his own counselor, director, comforter. And you know what he does? He considers it a poor substitute. How long do I have to keep listening to myself give me revelation, direction, comfort, wisdom? Some of you have been soaked and seeped in a household and a training method that says that's where the answer is. King David, who had an amazing list of accomplishments, saw self-sufficiency as far superior to leaning on God. Now, what's fascinating is that months ago, I laid out the schedule for this series. And I put it in writing, where we would be on which week. And I submit that to the Holy Spirit. I said, God, if you want this to change, if you want it to to move, I'll move it. But here it is that in the last two weeks, I shared a little bit last week, but my own life has been turned upside down with some difficult news. And last week, As I studied and preached to myself, leading up to Sunday, giving it to you, it was, our God is a deliverer. He's the one we run to in times of trouble, every time, exclusively, only. This week, our God is silent. Personally, I'll just share where I'm at personally. These couldn't be more perfectly timed, poignant messages to be soaking in these passages, thinking on them for my own life, hearing and living in the application of them before I come and preach it to anyone else. Now, in light of that, I've scheduled the following series on how to honor God in utter prosperity. Because I... I'm kidding. Um, if if the pattern followed suit, uh, I would... I would uh, Yeah, have everything go well. Just kidding. Um, Pull out your cell phone just for a second. If you have it with you, hopefully it's muted in some way, shape, or form. Um, Here is a common theme that we all see. Take a look at your phone for one second, and um, let's just make a confession to our phone, okay? I want you to look at your phone, and on the count of three with me, I want you to say to your phone, you will fail me, okay? It's a big step for some of you. On the count of three. One, two, three. You will fail me. Now, some of you felt a little more passionate about that. 
and you're squeezing your phone too hard. Let go. Put it, put it back. Here's a common scenario. This, for some reason, has happened in my own house in the last few months, and I'm not sure why, but uh, I'm trying to be thankful. I'm on the phone in my own house, and I'm dropping calls, losing calls, having problems hearing. Okay? We call it static sometimes. We call it dropped calls, and it's a common theme. Uh, here's what happens when you have uh, when you have static on your phone or you have bad reception. There's some of you in this room that immediately say this: "Hey, what's wrong with your phone? What are you doing? Are you moving around? Hold still! What's your problem? Now you haven't looked to see how many bars you have. You just jumped right to the person on the other end of the phone, and you're attacking that person. Totally unprovoked." Okay, in the physical realm, we would consider this an atrocious offense, but we see this all the time. Okay, that's some of you. Some of you, you're sitting perfectly still where you know you always get good reception. You're hearing problems and you graciously offer up or you say, sorry, I don't know what's happening. And you begin to stammer excuses for your phone. It's probably my carrier. I'm going to upgrade soon, whatever. And you just start making all kinds of excuses. I bring this up because of this. When we have broken communication with God, or so it seems, when there's silence between us and God, some of you are quick to shake a fist at God and say, what is your problem? God, where are you? Why aren't you answering me? What's wrong with you? Right? There's a whole different segment of people in here that immediately begin to think, what's wrong with me? Am I not praying enough? Am I not praying correctly? Am I not living correctly? Am I in a bad, you know, dead spot of reception? What's happening? I want you to identify yourself in one of those two scenarios because I would venture to guess you fall pretty strongly in one of those two camps most of the time. It goes a little bit probably in terms of conflict with fight or flight. There's, there's different personalities, right, in how we, in how we deal with things. Maybe there's a different answer, and that's what we're looking at in Psalm 13. Maybe we've heard of true love waits. Well, if Jesus truly is love, and he defines himself, God is love. Maybe true love, true love really does wait. That love gives, but there's seasons where love holds back. Love is near, but love also hides. Love comes through, but not always, or maybe even often, on time, according to me. And love speaks and is silence. silent. That's the paradox we live with as we get to know God. Now, at, at points of frustration, at points of pain, as you're learning to, to, to get to know someone, anyone, whether it be God or your next-door neighbor, if you get to a place where they rub you wrong or it's not how you thought they were, you have a couple of choices to make, don't you? You can just live in your own isolated bubble, not adjust your information to this new person that you're discovering who they are, and you want to just remember them how you think they are, and that becomes really socially bizarre. But people do that with one another. They just shut out the parts they don't want to hear. You know what happens to the relationship at that point? A, it stops to grow any deeper at all or expand, and B, it's now being built on a false premise. I've pointed out in the last couple of weeks, people who take the revealed God of the scriptures and they only keep parts that they like, 
We better be diligent students, diligent learners to say, God, even when you, even when you reveal yourself to be someone that I don't like how that looks, let me be okay with that. Let me move into that new arena of what I know about you. One option is to make up your own version of it. The other option is to just cut off communication altogether and stop pursuing that person. Let me give you some scriptures here on um, on distance. And uh, I'm behind in my slides, sorry. Psalm, Psalm 10, 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And from our passage today, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Not only is there distance sometimes, but the outright silence. Psalm 35, 22. O Lord, you know all about this. Do not stay silent. Do not abandon me now, O Lord. Wake up. Rise to my defense. Take my case, my God and my Lord. And Psalm 109, 1 says, O Lord, whom I praise, don't stand silent and aloof. Depending on your tradition, some of these passages, you're shocked to find these are in the Scriptures. Because perhaps your tradition told you that God is one that you should never question, that you should never call out, and certainly you should never make questions like this to God. If you do, you better fear just being zapped right away. And yet smack dab in the middle of the Scriptures, we see over and over and over a complaining, whining people and even questioning and doubting people. And I look at that and say, maybe that's just the goodness of God and that's a gift to say, I'm right here in the middle of your doubts and your questions. I'm big enough to handle you questioning me. If you're a parent this morning, think about this. Does your love or the nature of you being their parent change at all when your kids question your judgment? Of course not. Of course it doesn't. In fact, as a parent, don't you plan on being questioned sometimes? If you didn't, you figured out pretty quick that's part of the plan, right? You start doing a study on sin nature because you're like, man, my kid got infected. What happened? All of a sudden, there's just questions coming in left and right. There's trouble at schools. There's troubles with coaches. And gee, there's these, these questions firing back. It doesn't change your love for them. Your love is big enough to handle your kids' questions. So is God with us. I want you to think for a minute about what takes time. What requires time and therefore patience to develop? Now, if you immediately went to wine and cheese, good. You've got the easy ones right off the bat. That's very excellent. I don't know if you've eaten any vegetables or fruit lately, but we've got a garden in the back that's a great spiritual lesson builder for patience, right? Things to develop. Things you eat out of the ground. Some of you are in football mode. You're like, easy. It's a screen pass. A screen pass takes time to develop. You have to sell it and then throw the pass or else it doesn't work. On and on you could go. Kids, raising up a godly generation takes huge amounts of time. And you can't rush it. You have to be kind of where you're at in that phase right now. You can't start teaching them teenage lessons at the age of eight. So that requires wisdom to just say, I'm going to pour the time in for this. We could go on and on with this. Let me turn your attention to the arts for a second. 
If you're a musician in here, an aspiring musician, a pretend musician, a garage band musician, whatever, or even an enjoyer of music, what you know instinctively, even if you haven't said this out loud lately, is you know the vast importance of this right here. Pause. Silence. A hush. Think about music that just goes on and on and on and has none of that. There's no dynamic to it whatsoever. Most of you don't find that appealing. In fact, universally, that's not appealing. There's rests built in to music. Uh, look in your scriptures with me, and, and some of you have this and some of you don't. Um, some of you have the notation of the word selah in many of your Bibles. When you come across the word selah, it is a musical notation that is in instructing the choir master to hush, to pause, to be silent in that moment. And built right into music is this idea that silence is a gift in the hands of a composer. And just because there's a quiet, just because no one's making any noise in the entire orchestra at that moment does not mean that the baton is out of the composer's hand or the director's hand, and that he's not in complete control of what's happening. What if our lives are a piece of music and there's a silence and we're watching it unfold? We don't see the big picture. We're not nearly smart enough to have the perspective to see the whole big thing, and there's a pause. And for our taste, it's far too long. It's gone on for too many measures. It's in that moment that we can do what Psalm 13 psalmist does, which is to praise the Lord anyway, or to chuck the whole thing, turn our back on God. I want to close this morning before we move on to a time of communion with this idea of response. When the evidence that you do have for God, which is the revealed part that's been given to you and to your children forever, parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, Singles who are out of fear of God pouring into other people's kids and families. Be good stewards of those revealed things God's given to you. Pass them on from generation to generation to generation. When revealed evidences for God at work in your life and the evidences that you hope for but you don't have in possession come into contact and they collide, that's where a crisis of faith begins to happen. Here's the challenge. We don't know until we ask for it um, really what we're to know and what we're not to know. So we keep asking and God sometimes replies and gives us insight and revelation that we are just blown away by and it builds our faith. Doesn't it build your faith when that happens? And then you see that God was at work in that all along. And there's other times we'll ask Pray, fast, go after God the same way, and there's silence. There's not the answer that we're looking for. So what's our response? What do we do in these periods of waiting? Ecclesiastes 3, you don't have to turn there, but it's a famous passage that talks about the idea, kind of like the lyrics that Rob was just singing, that there's a time for every activity under the sun. And right there... In verse, uh, I think it's five maybe, it says there's a time to speak and a time to keep silent. There's a, 
there's a redemptive activity to be done when we're waiting in silence. So let me give you two action points, and I'm not really sure which one for you is the appropriate one, but you talk to God about it. One is to quiet down and just be silent. One of the things that I look to do when I'm approaching God, singing about God, we have some worship songs that talk about this, in fact. It's really important. Is not to rush into and enter into the house of God flippantly. I've been so guilty of that over the years. So many youth pastors flippantly address and talk to a holy God. God is not our buddy. God is nothing like us. He's given us free access. He calls us friends. But we ought to be careful not to sin with our mouth. Psalm 4.4 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Psalm 4.4. One of the reasons we ought to quiet down is to say, you know what, I don't want to dishonor God with my mouth during this time. All of us in this room say things we regret. As a talker, I say a lot of things I regret. I say, God, you need to control my tongue. Once they're out, you can't grab them and bring them back. Don't sin with your tongue during your pain. Quick aside, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it might be a little confusing. I've said that God allows questioning. We see it in Scripture that God makes a way for that, gives example for that. Now I'm telling you to be silent. Which one is it? Let me just point to the Christmas story for a second. Two people question God. One is Zechariah questioning Gabriel. Gabriel comes and he says, your wife is going to have a child. What he does is he asks back to Gabriel from a heart and a motivation of cynicism, doubt, and, and that kind of a place of a heart. The second person, go read this Christmas story today. The second person is Mary. Mary asks and receives this answer as best she can understand because she is asking it from a a place of faith, a place motivated by, I want to understand this. How can this be since I am a virgin? Good question. Really good question. So I'm not posing that you need to have good questions necessarily, but do you see the heart difference? What happened to Zechariah? You guys know your Bibles. What happened to him? Silence. Kind of fitting for our topic today, huh? He becomes unable to speak. Mary, in turn, gets an answer. Do you see the heart difference? My my challenge to you, my instruction to you is to say, search your own heart, ponder your own heart in this, and say, God, I don't want to I don't want to commit a sin with my mouth during this time. Pain and frustration in our household is not a free license to just go blabbing your mouth off at anyone who's crossing you. I hope it's not in your house either. That's true of mom and dad. That's true of the kids. What we'll do is we'll sit down the kids and say, I know that you're frustrated. I know that you're hurt. I know that you don't want to do this. You are not allowed to go and take that out on anyone else in the household. Don't sin with your mouth during your hurt. And if you have... Come to a gracious God. 
was full of loving kindness, and we'll forgive that, but confess it. The second idea behind quieting down, we practiced this as a men's group uh, during community groups. Some of the groups around town this week did this. But Psalm 46.10 says this, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Rest in that. A hush falls over after those words are sung. So let them sink in a little bit. That's Psalm 46.10, a great passage to remember. The point there is this. I said this last week. Right theology leads to right living. A right perspective about God. A right perspective about what this is. Leads to a right response in it. Say, God, to me, this is junk. To me, I want this out of my life pronto. Get rid of it. But I also know that whether in life or in death, in sickness or in health, you can take this body and you can use it for your glory. So you take my story, all of it, the good, the bad, from my perception, and you just use it to show you off to other people. That's what I want most of all. I know that sounds high and mighty and nice and easy to do, but you know what happens? God gives you daily bread in your pain such that you start to walk in this and you start to live this way and God's giving you that. You're not some hero that can handle pain and suffering better than the next guy. You can't even explain it. It says the peace of Christ guards your hearts and minds in such a way you can't... There's no logical explanation. It's only God. You ever look at someone and go, man, if that was me, I wouldn't be holding up that well. Man, if that was me, I would be chucking my faith. Man, if that was me, X, Y, Z. You know what? That's a fruitless... Exercise. God's not giving you daily bread for that. You don't need it. You don't need an extra measure of grace the way that person does. So don't either put someone up on a pedestal or put them down in their suffering and think of what you might do with that. Be a compassionate friend. Come and put your arm around and walk through them with it. Cry with them. Rejoice with them. Walk through them with it. Quiet down is one response. Speak up is another Matthew 7, 7 to 11, I just want to read it to you. I want to read just a couple of passages, and then we'll move into communion. Matthew 7, verse 7 says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? There's a lot in that passage. The fact that the verb is right up front, it's a command. Ask. Go do this. Knock. Seek. Just like a kid asking for Something, it doesn't say necessarily that the parent gives what the kid asks for. But he certainly isn't going to go give him something worse. We ask God for all kinds of things. And then the, in hindsight, we say, oops, God, thank you. Garth Brooks sang about it, remember? Something about thanking God for unanswered prayers. He had kind of a twang. It was a song. It was big. It was huge, actually. You should know this. But you're blessed if you don't. Um <laughs> You know what we do? We retract our requests sometimes, don't we? God, thank you so much for not 
coming through on that request. I didn't have a perspective. You are so much, and we give him praise for that. Cling to that the next time you're going through a difficult time. I do want you to turn into to Luke chapter 18. And in Luke 18, Jesus is telling a parable that's sometimes referred to as the persistent widow. And it's, it's worth just reading and seeing it in our text. Again, let this be a gift to you if you're wondering, what's my response? Do I need to just quiet down and quit trying to control everything? Be still and know that He's God? He is going to be exalted in the nations. He is our salvation. Or, do I need to speak up? Do I, have I stopped coming to God with this? Have I stopped crying out to Him? Look at Luke 18, starting in verse 1. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. That's very important. Why is He telling them this little story? It's not story time for story time's sake. It's that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Here it is. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This is a crazy story if you think about it. God teaching us how to pray and not lose heart. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. That's an encouraging parable that Jesus offers to his people who are wondering, Lord, where are you? How long? Keep at it. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. The last passage I want to offer to you is James chapter 1, verse 12. James 1, as many of you know, tells us, instructs us, commands us to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Psalm 13 is a song of lament. We've looked at a couple of laments already. It's not just the happy-go-lucky, here are the great parts of God that we love to discuss and embroider on things. In fact, the laments, if you remember, are the most common psalm. It's crying out to God. And James 1 tells us we're to consider all joy because there's some produce coming. And anytime you've ever experienced the principle of delayed gratification, you can understand this. Any of you who've argued over homework and told your kids, do your homework, you understand this. If you've gone through the pain of learning a new skill, ah, I'll just give up driving. There's too many things to remember. The joy of getting to drive and what you do with driving is worth the pain of getting there, is it not? Yeah, 15-year-olds are like, preach it! <laughs> it's true in so many other areas of life. Then James 1.12 comes along and says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive 
the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. I want to invite the band to come on up right now. And as they do, we want to end mimicking what this psalm does. This psalm resolves in verse 5 and 6, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. For my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Think about this. The most gracious, loving thing that God could possibly do when He's being silent to you is be silent. Remember Lazarus? I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there. I loved him and so I stayed for two more days. You think there wasn't a party and a rejoicing and a deeper love relationship between Lazarus and Mary and Martha and Jesus? Lazarus, come forth! Richer reward because of the dark night of the soul. I don't know if you've ever thought to thank God for not revealing certain things to you. But back to the Deuteronomy 29, 29 passages, it says that these revealed things belong to you and your children forever, that you may do all the words of this law. Think about this. It is a loving act of God not to reveal the whole picture to you. You know why? Because now you're on the hook. You're on the account for knowing all of that. It might be the most gracious thing in the world not to tell you things you can't possibly handle for tomorrow. Depths of knowledge that are far too wonderful for any of us in this room collectively to obtain and hang on to. This morning, I hope that you are extra thankful as we pass the elements in just a couple of moments. Ushers, you can get those ready right now. I want you to be thankful that God graciously chose to give us something that we can touch, something that we can taste, to be a reminder of His gracious, steadfast, delivering love. In your bulletin this morning, on the inside covers a picture of our communion elements in our church. And in red from John 13, 7, it says this, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. You do not realize now what I'm doing. I think God's whispering that to many of our hearts this morning. We're clinging to that. God, we don't understand what you're doing with our hurt and our pain. But you're going to reveal it in due time. First Corinthians 11 says this. Talking about the bread and the cup. It says, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. 
God, you've termed our current dilemmas as light and momentary for an exceedingly abundant, great, joyful reward. This morning, as we celebrate the putting to death of Jesus on the cross, which by that very act paid the penalty that was due me for my sin and the sins of the whole world. We do so with an eye toward the future. We do so with an eye that we don't have the whole story. And that though right now we wonder and question and struggle with where you are and what you're doing, yet will we praise you, yet will we take inventory of your gracious, good gifts that you've freely given to us that we could never earn. God, as we are inside of a building this morning and celebrating and thinking on and learning and understanding who you are, we can't help but mention and think about those, God, who are outside these walls on a Sunday morning who know nothing of your love, who have no idea of the tender mercies, who have no understanding of the Jesus they're rejecting. God, in that regard, you've told us explicitly not to be silent. You've given us instruction to go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel, for it alone is the salvation of all people to life. God, would you lift our eyes from our own troubles and struggle And in the grand scheme of things, God, our puny problems. Give us the grace this morning to submit those to your greater picture that you're painting. Help us to do that with joy. Help us to learn what it is to walk through suffering and trials, considering all of them joy because you're near. Because you don't leave or forsake us. Because while we don't hear you right now, you're not silent. You are still speaking today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.